know if you remember or not, but the day after Christmas, 2004, we on this planet, at least part of this planet, out in the Bay of Bengal, out in the South Pacific, experienced one of the most tragic events in this century. You see, somewhere out in that area, there was a shift in the ocean's crust. When that shift took place, there was a ripple effect that took place in the waters, creating what we call a tsunami. When that first happened, that water began to press out from its epicenter at nearly the speed of sound, crossing the Bay of Bengal in less than two hours. Beaches along India, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Indonesia didn't have a clue what was coming. People out on the beaches, people enjoying, having a good time. Suddenly the water begins to recede. I've watched video clips of people sitting out on those beaches like, what, what's going on? And then you could see off in the horizon this black mass that was fastly approaching. And when it came in, oh my, the tragedy. I, I read in Newsweek some accounts of what took place during this time. It's estimated in the end when it was all said and done, probably more than and more than this number, more than 150,000 lives were lost. In Newsweek, it gave some of these accounts. For example, in southern India, there was a, there was a, a beach, Marina Beach, where 20 young boys were playing pickup cricket out in the street, all 20 were swept away in a single wave. There was a 50-year-old grandmother who saw her daughter and two grandchildren swept away by a single wave. The mother actually ended up surviving, but to this day is mentally unstable with scars on her face where she clawed herself over realizing that her two daughters died in that tragedy. There was a fisherman, 43 years old, relaxing under a shade tree. He had just been to a Sunday morning mass. He watched this wave come in. And he stood up, climbed up to the top of this tree, screaming to his wife and his children, to go up, go up, go up. They didn't make it. Wow. What, what do you say to that? What do you say to that kind of massive loss of life? There are those who struggle to reconcile such Tragedy with the reality of God. They struggle with that. 
Um, now, for me personally, I understand quite well why an unbeliever might perish in that way. Because there's no one who is innocent. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, for it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So from a perspective of those that are lost, I look at it and what happened to them is nothing that would not eventually happen. And we are all in danger before a holy and just God. But what about those Christians? Now, I, I realize that in the South Pacific region that Hinduism and Buddhism dominate the religious climate, but there are those that are true believers sprinkled in that mist, those who have been born again, those who rest by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I do believe that there were some of them that had tragedy strike their lives that day. How do you explain that? When pain touches a saint's life, how do you explain that when that happens? How do you, how do you fit that into your theology? What do you do with that? For those that are truly saints, their sin and shame has been dealt with in the cross of Christ. So, so what happened? Well, tragedy will continue to strike people's lives. There are atrocities that have yet to happen. There is pain and suffering that will come to your life that is even greater than perhaps the pain and suffering that you've already experienced in your life. How do you, how do you factor that in to the equation of your God who is mighty to save? Well, in order to get a feel for that, we need to go to the book of Job today. I'm going to take a little break from my exposition through 1 John. And we're going to go to the book of Job and we're going to not camp out in any one particular text. I'm really getting outside of my comfort zone and we're going to look at some selective scriptures in the book of Job. And if I were to hang a title over the book of Job, it would be the title that I have given this message this morning, Tragedy to Triumph. God's purpose when saints suffer. The book of Job. Now, before I give you the principles that I want to give you, we need to understand exactly what's going on in Job. As a matter of fact, the bulk of what I'm going to be talking about is going to be what's going on in Job. And we're going to end by me equipping you with some things that I want you to hold dear to when tragedy does strike your life. In the book of Job, we see, first of all, the character of Job. Notice in Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read that there was a man in the, the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. He is 
a picture of what a follower of Christ should be. Now this, of course, is Old Testament. Matter of fact, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. This is the earliest breath of God that was put on the page, was the book of Job. And in Job's day, salvation did not operate any different than it does today. They just simply could not see as clearly yet. But he still, by faith, was blameless. He still, by faith, was able to turn away from evil. And because he was a man of faith, obviously, and he feared God. If you read on the next few verses writing there, he had great concern for his family. Every day he would go and he would offer sacrifices for his children in case one of them might have sinned against the God whom he so revered. This is who Job was. But this Job, with a character that is impeccable, with a character that is rooted in grace, Great calamity struck his life. Great calamity came upon his life. Let me read to you a couple of sections. We read, beginning in, in chapter 1 and verse 13, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters, that is Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in, in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job that said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another who said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. When he was speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. And if that wasn't enough, you can go to chapter 2 and you find out that Job's own health began to fade as he was inflicted with loathsome, leprosus-like sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. This Job who feared God. This Job who was a righteous man. Righteous only can be called righteous because he looked to God who was his righteousness. This calamity befell him. And this calamity that fell on this godly man was a crushing pain in his heart. He was in agony over this. Listen to what the Bible says. In chapter 2, in verse 13... The Bible says, and they sat with him, and that's talking about his three friends. I'll introduce to you, them to you a little bit more later on. They sat down with him on the ground. That is, they sat down with Job 
Uh, and seven days and seven nights they did this, and no one spoke a word to them, for they saw he was suffering very great. This man who feared God, this man who was God's, who was righteous by God, this man, Job, was suffering greatly. We read on over in chapter. If we go on over in chapter 3, Job does finally speak and he begins to talk about all the stuff that's going on to him. And he says at the end of chapter 3, he says these words. He says, For my sighing comes up instead of my bread and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest but trouble comes. This man who is a righteous man a God-fearing man, a man who turned away from evil, this great calamity came upon. Now I want to help you understand the source of this calamity in which we see this. For some of you, it may be the very first time you have ever come face to face with this biblical reality. And it will trouble you. But I tell you, let it bruise you and it will be freeing. I promise you. Wrestle with it. And then after we see that, I want to give you some principles on how to deal with and look at and understand pain when it does come and trouble and adversity from a God-centered point of view. Now, who... Who's the source of Job's pain? Was it Job? Did Job? Was there some hidden sin we're not seeing? Was Job reaping from his own flesh the destruction that was rightly due him? Is, is that it? Was it the devil? Maybe. Was it God? Maybe. We must look at the words of Scripture. See what's going on here. And I want you to get a right feel for what's happening. But first of all, thinking about Job, the, matter of fact, the bulk of the book of Job is made up of this conversation he had with these three good friends. And they were good friends. They, they really did. They were well-meaning, well-intended, really wanted to help Job in his suffering like anybody would want to help a friend. But so often what they were doing and what we do, because we're not doing it biblically, we're not trying to help people biblically, we're trying to help them with what we feel and what we think, they were doing more harm than they were good. These three friends, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they each had their own little idea about Job, why all this is happening to you. Everybody's got an opinion. Most of them are worthless if they're not based on truth. They thought things like this. There was Elphaz. Elphaz thought innocent people do not suffer. Well, innocent people do suffer because there's only been one innocent person in the world, and it was Jesus Christ. And he suffered on Mount Calvary, I remind you. So he was off the mark. There was Bilidad who was talking to him about how God rewards the good. Well, God does reward men that He has made good. 
But not always, but ultimately and eternally does. And those that are good are not good in themselves, for there's no one good, no, not one, but those who God has made good. So his idea was a little off. And then it was Zophar who rebuked Job for claiming that he was innocent. He had done nothing to bring this on himself. I tell you that what Job was doing and claiming innocence is he was standing by faith. I am innocent and right, not because of who I am, but because of the God that I worship. Well, you know what God had to say about these three well-meaning friends? Offering all kinds of advice to Job. Uh, the Lord said this... He said in Job 42 and verse 7, he says, It came about that the Lord said to Elphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Job wasn't the root of his own cause. Now, was it Satan? Well, it is clear that Satan was the active player in his pain. Okay? The Bible tells it. I mean, we read in, for example, in, um, if you look over in, in, in chapter 2, uh, well, no, chapter 1, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. Don't let that phrase, sons of God, confuse you. That's ben Hak Elohim. That's referring to angelic beings. Okay? He goes on and says, There was a day when the angels of God, is how we could say that, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and you've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand against him and touch all that he has and he'll curse you. And Satan did that. And Satan did it again. When he inflicted him with a deadly disease. However, Satan is the puppet of God. Do, do you understand that Satan is not, in the life of a believer, in the life of one who follows the Lord, Satan is not some free agent. Satan cannot do anything to a Christian except what God permits or you choose to open a door for. And in this particular case, it was God's choice. It was God's choice. Satan only brought the calamity because God gave the sovereign permission. Job sort of understands this when he says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He gives Satan no credit for anything. You want me to let you read a very troubling verse? 
Have you ever read Job chapter 42? The end of Job chapter 42? Let me, let me just read to you what verse 11 says in Job chapter number 42. Verse 11 says, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Now that bothers you, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, can I tell you what it doesn't mean? Can I tell you what it doesn't mean? God does not do moral evil. That word is not referring to moral evil. If you go back to its Hebrew root, it simply is talking about what philosophically we refer to as natural evil. We're referring to disasters. Has not the Lord brought this disaster upon you? Does not the prophet Amos also say, if calamity befalls a city, has not the Lord done it? You say, I don't understand this. I don't understand. This seems so bad that God would do this, that God would touch alive or allow the enemy to touch the life of one who served him and feared him like Job did. And if that... Is troubling you too much, listen to me. Do not look with temporary eyes. You need an eternal perspective. You need to understand that God has plans and purposes that are bigger than what you can ever imagine. And I remind you from the New Testament revelation in, in the book of 1 Peter that there is, the Bible explicitly said, there is a suffering according to the will of God. And any suffering that comes into the life of a believer is according to the will of God. And it has a good redemptive purpose and a redemptive plan. Listen to me. When all your life seems to be falling apart, when calamity befalls you, don't sit around and think God's against you because God's still for you. Don't think that God's given up on you. He has not left you, nor has He forsaken you. God is still working, and He is working in ways that you cannot perceive, you cannot wrap your mind around to accomplish good, God-glorifying purposes in your life life. You've got to know that. God does not hurt you to harm you. God only allows pain to come in when it's going to bring triumph in your life so that you go from the tragedy to the triumph. And you say, why does it go that way? I don't understand everything in the mind and the will and the counsel of God. And I understand that His ways are not my ways and His thoughts are not my thoughts. But I do know that in this fallen, corrupt world, this is the way of God. And it is right, and it is good, and it is holy. Now, Job, even though he was a righteous man and a blameless man, not, by God's own defining, his vision of God did get a little blurred. Kind of hard to understand and figure out this kind of stuff. His vision of God did get a little blurred. He began to wonder. Has God 
forsaken me. You can read about that in, in Job chapter 16, verses 6 through 17, where he, he begins to wonder if God was out to destroy him. But by chapter 23, the purposes of God were beginning to kick in. And you know what Job did? Job, regardless of what was going on, Job began to seek after God. He began to hunger after God. He began to want to know God in the midst of all of this. Well, God makes Himself known in chapter 38 to Job. I love chapter 38 because in chapter 38... God gives Job some perspective because Job had all these questions of God and then God all of a sudden gives some perspective to him. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel with, by words without knowledge? Talking about Job, this is God speaking. Uh, Dress for action like a man, I will question you and make, make it known and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, I, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who searched the, the, stretched the line upon it? Or where it, its base is sunk? On what were its base is sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sung together and all the Ben-Hak Elohim, sons of God, shouted for joy? Where were you? Oh, Job, old man. You think you can figure me out? Where were you when I created all that you see? In his encounter with Job, Job is humbled. And Job, in, 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 in chapter 42, the first six verses, First six verses, he confesses that this is the just process of God. And we see the divine purpose for this in Job's life. If you look in chapter 42, beginning verse 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known before who had known him before, and they ate bread with him. And then they showed him sympathy and compassion for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each of them gave him a piece of money with a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed him the latter days, the, the latter days of Job more than his beginning. More than his beginning. Wow. You see... In the midst of this pain and this tragedy, the God whom Job feared, guess what? He became real to him. Do you understand? Your theology isn't worth a flip until it goes through the fire. All you've got is a bunch of Sunday school knowledge until your feet go through the fire. Till you walk through the time of suffering where all you can do is seek after the mercy of God. And in being bruised by that pain, you shall be blessed, Jacob. You shall be. Now, what is it? What, what is God's good and loving purpose in something like this? Well, God's ways are without number. 
But I would offer you four things quickly that I want you to remember and hold on to. The first one is, and as we look at Job, is when tragedy strikes your life, God is creating in you, saint, a greater hunger for Him. He's creating in you a greater hunger for Himself. We saw that in Job 23.3. We see that, for example, in David's life. Um, in Psalm 13, he's, at one point he's like, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. Uh, and he goes on and on and on. And then all of a sudden he brings to the place and he says, but I have remembered your unfailing love. And he finds joy in the Lord. It was all the pain and the turmoil and the suffering that David went through that caused him to compose psalms like Psalm 42 where he says, as the deer pants after the water brook. Oh my soul, it pants after you, my God. Or as David would say in the 63rd Psalm, my soul, my soul, it thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land. Tragedy is not without a divine purpose. And it is good that you would hunger for God. A second reality. God is bringing to you, this ought to humble you, God is bringing to you a greater revelation of Himself. God is bringing to you a greater revelation of Himself. In Psalm 42, in verse number 5, listen to what... Job says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and I'm going to read verse 4. He says, Hear and I will speak. I, I will question you and you make it known to me. This is Job answering the Lord. And then he says in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. All these years. Okay? But now, now, post-tragedy, but now my eyes see you. This is what I mean about theology becomes real in tragedy. Doctrine becomes, otherwise it's just a bunch of stuff you talk about all the time. But it becomes real in the midst of pain, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of suffering. It becomes real. The God you've talked about. The God you've sung about. You experience Him in a deeper, more intimate way. And that is truth. And we need that. We need that. Throughout redemptive history, you read throughout the Old Testament, it's always been in times of crisis that God made another revelation about Himself. Always. Every time there's been another character name of God revealed to us in the Old Testament, whether that be El Elyon, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rophe, Jehovah Mekeh, and the list could go on and on and on and on, Jehovah Sabaoth. Every time God has made a revelation about His character, it has been at a time and a point in the crisis of Israel, of the Hebrew people. Had they not entered that crisis, 
they would not have known God like that. You will only know God in the shallow waters until you are taken and dragged to the torrents of the depth of destruction and forces that you cannot comprehend. Wow. God is also making you more holy in conduct in the midst of such tragedy. He's, it's bringing you to greater triumph over the sins in your flesh. In Job, do you not notice what, what happens with Job? Uh, verse, verse 5 and 6, he says, in verse 5, remember he said, I, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, what did he say? He says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. He saw more evil in himself. And he repented. That is good. That is good. What did the writer of Psalm 119 say? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Implication is, after I was afflicted, I learned to walk in a straighter path. Wow. And then, a fourth thing, just to sum it all up under, I would tell you this. Straight from the book of Job, God's working a greater blessing in your life. The blessing may not be what you wanted before, but you will find in the end the blessing that He's working is what you need, and it is the true blessing in a way that you needed to be blessed. But He did it for Job, and He'll do it for you. He did what Job and Job needed, and He'll do for you what you need. And He only does what you need for you, not so much for you, but for His glory. Because when you find good in God, He gets the most glory. Wow. In the frightening and painful process of adversity, hold on to these truths. Hold on to these truths. Hold on to these truths that I've given you and remember like David when his enemies were about to overtake him. You remember what David said in Psalm 18? David says this, he says this, if you couple verse 4 with verse 30, he said, The ways of death have encompassed me, the torrents of death have assailed me, this, but this God, His way is perfect. Wow. Always remember that when pain seems unbearable, remember truths like Romans chapter number 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall spare us? From the love of God. What shall separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We consider, are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. <laughs> Through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demon, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else, in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me draw to close by reminding you of simply this. When tragedy strikes lives and when something like what happened in the South Pacific in 2004 and 150,000 plus lives are lost in the Indian Ocean. Listen. What happened to them will happen to every person under the sound of my voice.
It may not come in a tsunami, but it will come. Death will come. Death will overtake you somewhere at some time. It's appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. My question I must leave you as a pastor that must do the work of an evangelist is simply this. Are you prepared to stand in the judgment? And the only way to stand in the judgment is to rest and sit in Jesus Christ. Grace to you.